0: We're uh, continuing our journey in the book of Hebrews Uh, that will take us through Easter and uh, beyond because at the heart of the book of Hebrews is trying to explain uh, who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus, the sovereign supreme one and the ultimate supreme savior. That sums up the book of Hebrews. Therefore, follow him. Therefore, put all of your trust in him. Therefore, live for him and for him uh, alone. Three things are coming together today. Um, Kerry and I first came to Burlington 27 years ago this weekend, so thank you everybody uh, for the journey uh, so far. Three things coming together this morning. Hebrews chapter 2 that Jill just read to us talks about the way that Jesus is the ultimate saviour. Just look at it with me for a moment. I'm going to read from verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 2. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. That's the way the NLT describes it, the New Living Translation. When Jesus rescues, nothing is left out. Think about that for a moment. There is nothing that's outside the rescue of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing that's outside his ability to rescue and to redeem uh, salvation covers, his salvation covers everything. How did he do it? It goes on, but we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. In other words, we haven't seen yet the fullness of his salvation. We know that one day we will see that Jesus can rescue everything that, that, that calls on the name of the Lord, but we haven't yet seen it. What we have seen, it says in verse 9, is that Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angel's, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. We haven't seen the fullness of God's salvation yet, but what we have seen is how he achieved it. We have seen that Jesus tasted death for everyone. That's for you and for me, for All of us, for everyone. There isn't anyone outside this sense of Jesus experiencing death on our behalf. Verse 10. God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory. Yes. That's you and me. Should we try it again? God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory. Yes. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So, three things coming together today. That's the first thing. At the heart of Hebrews chapter 2 is this reminder that what we have seen is that Jesus has tasted death on our behalf. We haven't yet seen the fullness of what that salvation will ultimately look like because one day there will be no more wars and there'll be no more crying, be no more mourning or same for the old order of things has passed away. We haven't seen that yet, but we will. We will meet you at the East Gate, all of that stuff. We will. We will. We'll see you there. But what we have seen is Jesus having tasted death For everyone. The second thing then coming together today is that in the liturgical calendar, which you know that I follow very carefully, it's Passion Sunday. And Passion Sunday is traditionally the Sunday when you focus on the cross. Because whilst you have Good Friday in uh, just over 10 days' uh, time, however many days it is, 12 days' time, obviously next Sunday is kind of Palm Sunday, and then the Sunday after that is Resurrection Sunday, everybody. So this Sunday is when people have typically focused on the cross. And that's what, that's what Hebrews is all about, isn't it? Fix our eyes on Jesus who endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And then remember last week, the third thing that's coming together. Remember last week was all about head and heart. Anyone remember anything about last week? Head and heart. Head and heart. And how we need to lean in to both our head and our heart. The work that God does within us isn't just head, and it isn't just heart, but it's actually when head and heart come together that we uh, become the people that God has created us to be. And we talked how it's easier quite often for us, particularly in our uh, traditional uh, uh, church environments, the way the West has been brought first to push into head and to leave heart uh, behind. So what does it mean this morning to engage our head and our heart as we look at the death of Jesus and I want us to particularly think about engaging our hearts you see our head knowledge is probably quite secure you'll know the verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God made him who had no sin remember what it says to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a very head, intellectual explanation of what Jesus did on the cross. The atonement, the way he achieved our at one with God, the propitiation for our sins, the ransom, the payment, all of those kind of words and language. But today, I want you to feel what it means for Jesus who died on the cross for you to feel it, to feel it somewhere here rather than just to know it somewhere here. It's something about the cross, isn't there, that draws us. Something about the cross that draws us, for all of its horror and ugliness, it has become the place for us of devotion and not only the place of devotion, we have understood that the cross is the place where we receive power into our lives. We, we know what Paul was talking about when he said, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block and foolishness to some people, but for us it's the power of God and the wisdom of God, that somehow in the cross, around the communion table, when we focus in on what Jesus did for us, there is something utterly different that begins to happen in our hearts, which is strange from the outset, isn't it? Because thousands of people were crucified. However horrific it was, and it was, uh, hundreds, thousands of uh, people were crucified in times of revolt. Sometimes there will be hundreds of men, uh, sometimes women, but mostly men, lying uh, um, crucified with the crosses lying along the side of the Roman road, roads as a reminder that you must not revolt against Rome. So in one sense, what happened to Jesus is perfectly normal, perfectly predictable for a, a young political Activist for for for, for, a, for a preacher that stirs up the crowd. The end was altogether horrifically common. Yet, yet, when Jesus died, something began to happen. Wouldn't you agree? That has not stopped happening for two thousand years. Isn't that remarkable? Thousands of crucifixions, two a penny. However horrific they were, they were two a penny. Yet, this one man, nailed to a very similar cross in a very similar way, something happened in those moments, the results of which you and I are still living under the shadow of today. And it was that centurion, wasn't it? Who kind of articulated it. A centurion who'd seen hundreds, maybe thousands of people crucified. The centurion who personally, probably, as he went up the ranks, and then in the role of management and supervision of the executioning, executioning, executioning process, had himself and seen many a man and unfortunately a woman nailed to a cross. But something happened to him that day when he saw the way that Jesus died. Maybe he couldn't even understand it in his head, but something changed in his heart. And he said, gosh, that man. That man has something no one else has got. In that man, I see something that's of another place, of another world. Surely that man was the son of God. What was it that touched his heart? Maybe we'll never know. This side of eternity. But it's a great question when you see him. What was it that caused this weather-worn soldier to take a giant step of faith. My prayer, our prayer for one another, is that the death and resurrection of Jesus, as we embrace it for the first time or for the nth time, will touch us and change us. And we will understand afresh that in that moment, something was happening, the results of which we still are part of today. And to help us engage, we're going to look at the seven sayings, the seven things that Jesus said from the cross. When people know that they are dying, they make final plans. They put things in place. They get their house in order. Unspoken words are said. Loose ends are tied up. Final acts, final hours, final Words And uh, and maybe Jesus on the edge of death, always totally in control, knowing exactly what was coming, knowing that he must go to Jerusalem, knowing that he would be handed over uh, by the chief priest, knowing that he would be crucified, got his house in order with seven sayings from the cross. Seven. Nothing left to chance. The perfect number. The number of completeness. Not the words of a desperate martyr uttered by chance. No, probably not a bit of it, but carefully Crafted, divinely chosen words on the lips of Jesus in these moments. The perfect way to end it all. As he was crucified, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Notice that the first words of Jesus from the cross are addressed to whom? To his Father. You will notice before we end that the last words of Jesus on the cross are addressed to his. Because that's it. Right there in life and death, the whole of life, its beginning and its ending, its living and its dying, is about relationship with Father. And it is an absolute staggering catastrophe. That followers of Jesus have sometimes turned this primary relationship with Father into some kind of religion. Jesus would be horrified of some of the religiousness done in his name when he said in life and in death, it's about Father. And the more we push into our relationship with God as Father, the more we'll discover the vibrancy of life that Jesus lived and that Jesus had, has for us. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine the noise around the cross? The onlookers are are shouting, come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Everyone's full of the banter, taking the mick. The religious leaders are joining in. He saved others, let him save himself. The soldiers, they make fun just to pass the time. He saved others, can he save himself? Bitter words. Acidic with sarcasm, hate-filled Irreverent. Wasn't it enough that Jesus was being crucified? Not enough to be shamed as a criminal? With the nails insufficient, the crown of thorns too soft, the flogging too short? They'd broken his body, but now somehow with their words they were seeking to crush his spirit. Jesus offered nothing back. No retaliation, no backbiting, no, what I would have said wait till the resurrection sunshine. No call on the angels, no words of reply. How different from every other crucified person, filling blasphemies, expletives that filled the air. History recounts that even the tongues of some crucified victims were cut out because their blasphemes were considered to be too horrendous. And into that cauldron of hate and bitterness and sarcasm and anger and degradation, Jesus said, Father, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. It's a certain grace, isn't it, to forgive those who have turned from their wrong. But hear Jesus Christ's forgiveness for those who were against him. Forgiveness for those hammering in the nails. Forgiveness for those spiking his feet. Forgiveness for those who showed no remorse, offered no regret. For those whose only response was to gamble for his clothes. And it was not just to the soldiers. As he cried, Father, forgive them. It was for everyone, to Pilate, to the soldiers, to the crowds, to you and to me. All those who have no idea what they are doing. Father, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Do you feel it? Do you feel it? I invite you to feel. To feel those words for you. A cry for you and for me. While we were sinners, enemies of God. While we were against him. While we were busy in our own stuff. Putting him on a cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They've they've lost it. They've no idea what they are doing. Paul would later say, trying to understand it all, that God truly showed his love for us, demonstrated his love for us, for while we were yet, while we were his enemies, while we were against him, whilst we hadn't given him a second thought, whilst we were taking our own responsibility for that cross and for those nails, he says, Father, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. The first step to resurrection power is to hear those words of Jesus to his father and to know that they're for you and for me. The very next word, Jesus uh, answered, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was the weirdest conversation you might ever have imagined. There's a criminal on the cross next to Jesus who's totally aware of what his life has become and he dares to ask Jesus for something. How utterly confident, overly confident, cocky you might say, that he dares to ask Jesus for something as he hangs on the cross for everything that he has done. However absurd that is, that he should be bold enough to ask, probably even more absurd is that Jesus was grace-filled enough to answer. He asked for help. He asked to be pardoned. He asked to be remembered. And Jesus said, yes, yes, today you will be with me in paradise. It can be a really tough moment, can't it? When you get clarity on the truth of who you are. Anyone know what I'm talking about? When God in his grace or For some other reason, you're awakened to what's real on the inside. The stuff that you've stuffed down, ignored, fought off, battled through, pretended it isn't there, presented a different picture to the world, and suddenly you become aware of what's true. Here is this guy hanging on a cross, super concentrated in time about who he is and what his life is. Had become. The truth is searing into his being. He knows he's got nothing left. He he, he knows that he is undone. He knows as he hangs on that cross that there is nothing left. What, if anything, did he have that would cause Jesus to be interested in him? Nothing. He could do nothing, offer nothing, promise nothing, prove nothing, nothing. And in return for nothing, Jesus offers him everything. Can you feel that? In return for nothing, Jesus offers him everything. As I get to that place of understanding the truth of who I am, that I have nothing in the end to offer, I make space in my life to receive everything. You'll be with me today in paradise, a place of unimaginable harmony, a place where this strange passage called life will become fully known. Today you will be with me. We've arrived at the heart of the cross. You come with nothing and you receive everything. Good Friday reflection, 10 o'clock here in church, feels so important this year as we come to the cross that we'll have down here on the platform by then. And as we come to the cross, recognizing that in the end, in the face of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, we've got nothing. What are we going to say? I've been to church a little bit. I've been to church a lot. I've read my Bible. I've helped someone. I've done this. What are we going to say? Isaiah says, whatever you say, when you see it clearly, you realize it's just filthy rags. And the sooner you you just recognize that we see in our lives that there's nothing left, we make room for his everything. And so we bring to the cross ourselves, our nothingness, our sense of who we truly are, allowing the truth to get rooted and clarified in our lives, not out of fear, Not out of a sense of being overwhelmed, because we know that in that place of discovering that we're empty, Jesus gives us everything. How do you feel? How do you feel that God would give you everything for nothing? We want to do something, don't we? We want to earn it. We want to... We want to show that we somehow did. No, 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 for for nothing. Everything for nothing. It's one of the hardest things, I think, for us to grasp in gospel terms. That utter dependence on the grace of Jesus. That all we can do is ask. And that dying thief asked. And he received everything in return. How does that make you feel? And then he saw her. She'd been standing there, of course, the whole time. She'd never left. It was the moment that she dreaded all her life. Who knows when she had real clarity about how it would end. But whether she had that clarity or not, she knew the dark, dark shadow hung over his life. And one day there would be a pain that would pierce her heart. Jesus' mother, Mary. She pondered everything the Bible says deep in her heart. And the words of Simeon at the temple were surely never forgotten. And here she stands, the lonely vigil for her firstborn son. And Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son, dear mum. Dear mum, I love you. John, look, she's getting old now, John. She's been through so much. I have brought joy, but with great pain. Take her home, John. Keep her safe. John, I love you, Mom. What do you feel? What do you feel that in that moment, Jesus reaches out to his mother? What do you feel that in that moment, Jesus does what he does for all of us? There's Mary in all her grief and in all her brokenness and in all her sense that her life through the life of her son is ebbing away and Jesus places her in a new family because that's what Jesus always does. He places us in families, echoing what the psalmist said that God puts the lonely, the broken, the dirt, the destitute, the deserted into families and there on the cross, Jesus acts out what he was doing for all of us as he placed Mary into this new family. Placing her where she can be loved and known. Jesus saw the pain of her heart because he sees the pain of all of our hearts. Jesus speaks words of life to her, words of hope because he's speaking words of life and hope to all of us. How does that make you feel? And then suddenly, interrupting this eerie kind of silence and this t- uh, so sensitive and intimate moment, Jesus with his mother and John as if no one else is there, as if the clou- crowds have gone away, as if the soldiers' gambling has been obliterated from the scene. Suddenly, rising above it all, Eloi, Eloi, Lamech, Thani. My God, my God, where are you? Where, Where are you? Something is happening that Jesus had dreaded all his life. He's experiencing something that he knew would be so much deeper and so much more painful than any nails or spikes or crucifixion could ever be. This heart-wrenching cry, My God, my God, where are you? You've abandoned me. I'm alone now. I don't know who I am anymore. I'm without you. And as that pain seared into his heart, Jesus is utterly, utterly alone. He's never experienced this ever before. Sure, he'd been alone on a hillside or early in the morning and awake through the night, but never like this. You see, his father, it's all about father. His father was always there, embracing him through the darkness of prayer-filled nights. Or whispering to him in the stillness of the dawn. But this, not this, never this. This is what he feared most. The pain so much deeper than he ever imagined. He is alone. Utterly alone. And Jesus embraces the deepest fear in all of us. that when it's all over, we are utterly alone. Alone. Father where are you? That fear of humanity fills his heart. The despair darker now than the sky. The two who've always been one are now two. Jesus always the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. In these moments there is a catastrophic separation. That relationship that had always existed before the beginning of time. The Godhead disjointed, the unity dissolved, the Trinity dismantled. Because that's what sin does. That's the effect of sin in our lives. It leads us to that place of alienation, of being lost, of being utterly alone. And sin is wrapping itself around Jesus' body in the darkness. Every lie and every lust, and every cheat, and every adultery, and every greed, every wrong word, bad word, hurtful word. It's all Jesus can feel now. It's all he knows, and he's utterly alone for you. Jesus was utterly alone for you, that you might never Be. Hallelujah. Do you feel that? Jesus was utterly alone for you. That you might never, ever be. And if we go back to that verse that I said was all about heart, can you feel it in a different way? God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's more that Jesus can take. This, his holy heart is broken. The sin bearer screams. As He wanders, the Bible says, in the wastelands of eternity, plucking sinners from the very depths of the alienation that the Bible calls hell, alone that we might never be separated from God that we might reach him, a cry of despair that brings us hope to face the horror of what I've become, to face the reality of the Father turning his face away, to be banished from his presence. I come with nothing and I receive everything in its place. He stood in my place. He stood in your place. Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and then something out of character or at least at first it seems out of character <clears throat> you see we've been doing all the big theological things i don't think that jesus had the depths of theological tomes on his mind as he died but we've been covering you know all the all the big kind of the atonement and the issues of christology and theories around salvation and so on and I guess the other cry is, therefore, we've understood the forgiving sinners, the promise of paradise, the justification, the sanctification, the propitiation, the purification that comes, the caring for his mother even, and then this cry of abandonment. that then there's one that's different. And it's different because I suppose we are reminded in the midst of this, there's a man. And he says what every man and woman most normally and naturally says. Do you know what? I'm thirsty. I'm so thirsty, Jesus says. And he asks for a drink. And it says that a a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked it on a sponge and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. He, he was thirsty just like you and me. It's a, it's a reminder, it's a break into this cosmic situation where there is a break in the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit split because of our sin, a reminder that Jesus was a man, a human being like you and me, tempted and experiencing everything in every way. So when we say, what does God know and what does God understand? He's never been like us. Yes! He's been like us. He's been hungry and tired and he's been frustrated and he's been trying to work something out and he's faced the limitations of being human and he asks here for a drink. Our bodies are made mainly of water and without water we shrivel up and we die and here is this man shriveling up without water. His life is running dry. But water is not the only thing that brings us life. Each of us has a thirst for something so much more. Refreshment that transcends our physical need, that sustains us way deep down. Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink, Jesus said, just a matter of months ago at the temple. But now even this spring of life appears to be drying up, sweating, struggling to breathe, bent over and bleeding. Jesus is thirstier than he has ever, ever being because we are all dying of thirst do you feel the parched life without jesus do you feel that without jesus your life is drying up and do you feel fresh drips of living life-giving water being poured out in this moment wherever you're thirsty Jesus is offering you water to drink. And then he cries. Usually in death there's a whimper, a kind of a softness, a gentleness in the voice. But no, here Jesus cries. He cries out, teta lest I, I've I've done it. I've completed it, It, it's over, i faced it, I am the other side. The dark valley is giving way to greener pasture. It's perfect tense, it means that what I've achieved has an impact and always will have an impact into the future. It has been done, can never be undone, it's finished and always will be. The very same words you would write on a bill that was paid or a loan that had been completed or a debt that had been cleared. The relief, the exhilaration, the freedom, the anticipation of all that will be, it's finished. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross that he might bring many sons and daughters to glory. It's finished. The work that day was not the soldiers or the centurion or the crowds or the mourners. The work that day had been Jesus' work himself. South, and he'd done it. I fought the fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. The history long plan of redeeming the world. The plan that was conceived, the Bible says, even before the world was made, even before the world was made, God already had a plan to rescue it. That plan was coming to its glorious fruition. Can you imagine the yes in the heart of God? Because they'd done it. They'd given everything for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible says all of them were involved in the cross. All of them caught up in that moment. All of them suffering the pain and the agony. The reality of sin and its alienation and its abandonment that it creates. And now the job was finished. The song had been sung. The blood had been poured. The sacrifice made. The sting of death itself had died. It was over. Do you feel it? cry of defeat? Hardly. A victory shout, more like. Had his hands not been pinned to the cross, to be yes, yes, we've done it, it's over, and all we've got left, my friends, is the mopping up, because it's done, it's finished. And when the priest Hebrew says had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What do you do when you finished your work? You sit down. And so Jesus sat down, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he would said this, he breathed his last. He died with the confidence that all of us can live by, that we are the Father's child. And sometimes we might find ourselves a very, very long way from home. But as the father's children, we can know for sure that one day, one day we'll be home. How do you feel? How do you feel as the band comes and gets ready to lead us? Lean into, lean into something that you feel this morning. How do you feel? Find an emotion that the spirit of God would put his Put his hand on say, so say, just lean in, feel that, feel the, the joy of that, the love of that, the grace of that, the wonder of that, the miracle of that, the embrace, the welcome, the invitation, the joy, feel that for you, lean in, lean in to something that you feel. And let's use these moments as Simone begins to lead us. Let's use these moments to lean into where the Spirit of God is just doing His work in our lives. Surely, that man was the Son of God. And suddenly for that century and everything was changed. What is it for you today? Where the Spirit of God invites you To see, see not with your head, but to see and to feel and to know with your heart.